In most ensembles, you try to tune every instrument to the piano. That's because most instruments can be retuned on the fly, but the piano takes a little bit more time to retune, so you want to use that as your standard. In orchestras, however, everyone usually tunes to the oboe. I think it's because the oboe is so piercing and easy to hear, but also because oboe players are always so in tune, aren't they? Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you joined me to talk about music that's tuned to the piano, and music that's tuned to the oboe, and sometimes music that isn't tuned to anything at all. It's a listener question mailbag episode this time around, and I've got a bunch of your questions to go through, so put on some headphones, find a comfortable place to sit, and enjoy the show. I, of course, don't mean to malign oboe players with my suggestion that they are not always in tune, though, of course, all woodwinds are sometimes out of tune. Oboe is a tough instrument, man. I play a lot of uh, reed instruments, but I don't play double reed instruments, and I've always been impressed by the challenges posed by that embouchure, specifically the oboe embouchure, which really requires a lot of pressure to play, especially to play with a consistent and good sound. And when you play an instrument like that out of tune, it really cuts through and does not sound good. So props to all the oboe players out there and to all the double reed players listening, I respect you and I do not know how to play the instruments that you play. So welcome back to the show. Boy, it sure is a time in the world right now. And I know that we're all feeling very separated from one another. A lot of people are under quarantine. Probably almost everybody listening to this is in some way or another closed inside their living space. And that can be really hard. I mean, if you're living alone, especially, but even if you're living with roommates or people that you maybe don't see that often or know that well, it can just be tough to feel so cut off. I'm a pretty extroverted person, but I also do okay on my own. And I lived alone for a long time. And man, It had its ups, but it definitely had its downs as well. So if you're out there and you're living alone, I see you. If you're having a tough time, I totally get it. I have one idea for something that you can try that all of listeners of Strong Songs can try that might help. Recently, the journalist Ezra Klein was talking about social distancing on his podcast, and he shared the, I think, really useful observation that social distancing is the term that everybody uses, meaning you have to keep your space from people to keep from spreading germs. But as he pointed out, social distancing isn't really the best term. Really, it's physical distancing. We need to be keeping our physical distance, but we also need to be doing a lot of social solidarity. We actually need to be socializing with one another. It doesn't mean, you know, sitting right next to each other on the couch and holding hands hands, but it's probably still a good idea to maintain some sort of social connection with one another, and I've actually been finding that music is very, very good for that. So a few weeks back, an old friend of mine who lives here in Portland with me, he's an amazing drummer, we went to music school together, and we've listened to tons of music together over the years. In fact, Strong Songs is really partly inspired by all of the times that we would spend just sitting around listening to music and talking about it, kind of trying to recreate that energy for a, a wider audience. But he came to me with the idea of, hey, you know what? Let's start a listening club. Just you and me. We'll take turns. Each day, one of us will recommend an album, and then we'll both listen to it on our own time, just all the way through with no interruptions. 
questions, and then afterward we'll just talk a little bit about it, and then the other person will make a recommendation for the next day. If we can't do a day, no big deal. If we have to take a skip, that's totally fine. We're just going to go through a bunch of albums, we'll keep a list, and over time we're just going to share a lot of music together. We've been doing that for a couple of weeks. We actually added another one of our friends, so now there's three of us doing it, and it's been so cool. I mean, I listen to a lot of music on my own. I go on walks and listen to albums. I listen to stuff while I'm getting ready to make the show. But doing this thing, this just sort of asynchronous shared musical listening experience has been wonderful, and I really recommend giving it a shot. If it sounds at all like something you might be into, if there's a friend of yours who you can think of, it might be something that you would want to share with them, go for it. Just give it a shot. If it doesn't take, if you can't stick with it, if it's too much of a commitment, no big deal. But it's worth taking a shot at it because it's really been a wonderful thing for me, and it's been a nice way to socially connect with someone through music, even when we can't be physically in the same space. Speaking of connecting with people, this is a Q&A episode. I'm going to be answering a bunch of your listener questions. Thanks so much to everybody who sends these in. I have a whole ton that I want to get to on future Q&As. It's just really nice to hear from people, to hear your questions, to get a load of what you're listening to, and also to hear, you know, just feedback on the show, people sharing their own musical experiences or experiences they had listening to strong songs, or, you know, music recommendations, which has been great. I have this massive list that I'm going through, and that to me actually does feel like a more removed but still genuine way of sharing music with all of you, which has been really meaningful for me. As always, you can send me questions, feedback, music recommendations, anything else to strongsongspodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Kirk, K-I-R-K Hamilton, or on Instagram at Kirk underscore Hamilton. And I've been having fun on Instagram. I've been using Instagram stories to actually share the music I listen to on walks. And a lot of it is stuff that I'm listening to in that listening club that I mentioned, though, of course, some of it is just stuff that I listen to on my own. Strong Songs is an entirely listener-supported show, and that means more than just financial support though of course it partly means that. It also just means that I mostly spread this show around. Like People only really find out about it because a friend recommends it to them. And it's really meaningful to me when any of you tell me, you know, oh, I heard about this show from a friend and I really like it. Or I told everybody I know about this show. That's super cool and I hear that a lot. It makes me really happy. So thank you so much to everybody who's been spreading the word. Of course, listener support also does mean financial support. We're a Patreon show. I only make money from the Patreon for Strong Songs. Thanks a ton to everybody who's been signing up for the Patreon. That's really exciting and heartening for me just because I want to keep making this show. I'm terrified about the economy just like everybody else, but I want to make strong songs forever. So it's been really awesome to see people signing up. If you want to know more about how to support me on Patreon, you can head over to patreon.com slash strong songs. Before we get into the new questions for this episode, I want to revisit a question from our first 2020 Q&A episode. That is, of course, Fabian's mystery track. He wrote in with a recreated track that he had made on his own of a tune that he heard as a child and he could not for the life of him remember what it was. Our listeners were very, very quick and very consistent in figuring out the song, which I think actually speaks to Fabian's skill at recreating this track on his own for memory. So here is the track that Fabian recreated that I played on the last Q&A episode.
So as I mentioned, listeners nailed this one very, very quickly, and a whole bunch of you wrote in. Good job to everybody who who knew this song. I actually didn't know it, but it's a pretty cool song. So let's listen to what Fabian's song actually is. song is Me, Myself, I by Joan Armitrading from her self-titled album in 1980. And man, props to you, Fabian, for remembering it and recreating it so clearly. You got really, really close. I am very impressed. Speaking of recreating half-remembered songs from your childhood, I would be remiss here if I didn't mention that in the interim, very shortly after that Q&A episode went up, the very, very cool podcast Reply All aired an episode called The Case of the Missing Hit, in which one of their co-hosts, PJ Vote, and a listener try to track down a song that the listener had stuck in his head from hearing it on the radio as a kid in Arizona. That story is totally wild. It does not end with a bunch of listeners just writing in and telling telling PJ what the song is. It is this whole mystery. It's an amazing, amazing story. I will not spoil a minute of it because if you haven't listened to it and you like strong songs, you sincerely owe it to yourself to go find it. It's an episode of Reply All. It's called The Case of the Missing Hit. I'll link it in show notes. You gotta give it a listen. It's so much fun. Okay, that's enough old business. Let's get on to your questions. Our first question comes from Mike, who writes, What the heck is really going on with the drum beat and time signature for Devo's Blockhead? I don't play drums, but a drummer friend of mine thinks he might actually be in 4-4, and the drummer is just hitting the snare on extremely off beats. It sounds unbelievably wrong, and yet so right, a true Devo hallmark. What's your take? Well, first of all, I love Devo. I love talking about Devo. Let's listen to the song in question. This is Devo's Blockhead. Right. Well, I'm afraid your drummer friend is wrong. This song is in 11-8, or at least that section is in 11-8 time. This section that we're currently listening to is just in regular 4-4, but they're doing a pretty cool thing with a bar of 4 and then a bar of 7. Let me count it. Here we go. 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, And now they're in four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. It's super hip, right? This is from 1979. I love this era of Devo. I really just like Devo in general. And this is actually a good example of 11-8, which is an intimidating sounding time signature. But once you know how to count it, it's not actually that intimidating, especially because they do it in such a straightforward way. It's a bar of 4-4, which, you know, is eight eighth notes, and then a bar of 3-8. So 4-4, then 3-8. So you count 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3 if you want to count it that way, or you could count the eighth notes, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three. Now there's also a way that you could count this that's one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. There is a the way of interpreting it that way. That's not how I count it, but you could. And once you can kind of feel that, you'll you'll kind of understand where that bar of three eight fits into the groove they're playing. Never leaves a gap on 
cool stuff. Very cool band. Hopefully that is helpful for counting that groove. Our next question comes from Ori, who writes, I am a big fan of the late Michael Brecker. As a saxophone player, which I am not, I assume that you are too. Ori, you're right. I'm a huge fan of Michael Brecker. He was a legend and one of the greatest saxophone players who ever lived. Ori writes, On his song Funky See, Funky Do, at around 4.15, he plays alone. Two noteworthy things happen. One is that he manages to produce a broad variety of double notes simultaneously, which you mentioned on a previous episode. The other is that near the end of his solo, he produces a sound that is like he's using a wah-wah pedal. My question is whether he is using any electronic devices other than the microphone itself, such as a wah-wah, to manipulate the acoustic sound of his saxophone. So the answer to that question, the short version is yes, though I really want to play these examples because this is an absurdly sweet saxophone solo and I want to play you a little, a couple little excerpts from it. But to answer the question, yes, he is using um, pedals. He's using some sort of pedals to get those sounds live. The double notes that Ori is talking about that I referred to earlier are multiphonics, which are something you can do on most wind instruments where you let the instrument vibrate between two different frequencies. And that's one trick that saxophone players do. Michael Brecker does actually use a lot of um, multiphonics and overtones in his songs, though it's not actually what he's doing here. Here he's using an effect, some sort of a harmonizer pedal, and I'm going to play you what I'm talking about now. So he begins his solo, just solo saxophone, it sounds like this. Man... All right, all right. So you heard it a little bit at the end there, but he starts using this harmonizer pedal to get a really, you know, crazy amount of double notes. I mean, he's playing a whole bunch of really fast stuff, but the harmonizer pedal is creating a lower second voice beneath his saxophone. not sure what that is. It makes a sound that sounds kind of like a bass clarinet. And if he weren't playing exactly what he was playing, I would actually maybe guess that he was playing both a tenor saxophone and a bass clarinet at the same time, because at some points it sounds a little like he's doing that. This is something pioneered by the great free jazz uh, saxophonist Rasan Roland Kirk, who would play like four saxophones at the same time. And, you know, some of them just go unfingered and they're just playing like an open C sharp. And then you're just blowing into them and it makes this titanic sound. It almost sounds like that, but then he he really gets shredding in the second part of this, and it's mimicking what he's doing. It's following so closely that it has to be some kind of a harmonizer pedal, but check this stuff out. It sounds really cool. So from there, he does switch the effect that he's using. So I think he just turns off the harmonizer and turns on a wah-wah pedal, which he did like to do, especially with the Brecker Brothers Band. And actually, I shouldn't say wah-wah pedal because I believe he is using an auto-wah, some sort of an envelope filter, to get a wah effect without working the pedal with his foot. I'm not sure what Michael's gear was, something like a Q-tron, something that does a sort of an auto effect like what the wah does without you having to do it manually, which takes some control away but makes it a lot easier to do. Sounds like this. 
What a cool sound, man. That's uh, There's a lot of people who do that now. I think I'm thinking of Joshua Redman playing with a wah-wah pedal on a Michelle and Degiacello record, or, you know, using some sort of an auto-wah to get a wah effect without using his foot. You'll hear it from time to time. You know, trumpet players do it too. Michael's brother, Randy Brecker, would actually play with effects on his trumpet as well. This album is a lot of fun. The album is called Heavy Metal Bebop. It's from 1978, and it's just a bunch of really killing stuff with a really killing band. Worth checking out that kind of early Brecker Brothers stuff before Michael went, I guess, a little more legit and started playing more acoustic jazz and less of that experimental stuff that he was doing in the 70s and early 80s. So, Ori, I hope that answers your question. He was using effects, and you can definitely do that live. You just run your microphone into the effects and then run that into the PA system, and the effects will be as loud as your as your acoustic instrument. Also, thanks for giving me an excuse to talk about Michael Brecker and the Brecker Brothers. Our next question comes from Trey, who writes in, The song We Built This City by Jefferson Starship often tops the list of worst songs ever written. What makes this song so horrible? I'm not ashamed to say that as a kid growing up in the 80s, I enjoyed the song. It had everything a kid wanted in a great song. Easy to sing along to, lots of good air guitar and drumming opportunities, that weird radio DJ breakdown part to change it all up, and all the other horrifically 80s synth rock things that made the 80s what they were. So, why is it considered a bad song? So this is a funny question because it all kind of depends on what criteria you're applying to a song, you know, how you can assign some sort of objective quality measure to it, like it's the best song ever written or it's the worst song ever written. I have seen this song by Starship at the top of a lot of lists of the worst songs ever written. I don't think that it's really due to the song itself. Like, it's a little cheesy, but it's catchy. It's well produced. I don't know. It's it's not bad at all. Um, obviously, I sometimes have trouble finding too many things to hate about a given song or at least even if there's a song that I don't really care for, I can always find something to like about it. That's definitely the case here. I think it's like a catchy song. Uh, my theory on why this always makes those lists, though, is actually the subject matter of the song. I think that there's some issue that people, and especially music critics, tend to take when a song is about how the genre of music that it is in is awesome. In this case, this is like, we built this city on rock and roll. These are typically called, I think, rockist anthems. And it's kind of the rockism thing of, you know, songs that are about how great rock and roll music is, and they don't make it like they used to, and all this stuff on the radio is bad, and I just give me some old-time rock and roll. Old-time rock and roll is a good example of one of these. There are a lot of songs like that, and I think that that sticks in the craw of some people, and they wind up kind of making fun of the song as a result of it. I would say that, to answer your question, considering that this is kind of a catchy, well-put-together song that's not that objectionable, and if it just were about something different, I think it would just be seen as a sort of catchy, cheesy, 80s pop rock song. I think it's the fact that it's about how rock and roll is this mighty unifying power and it's so great that makes people roll their eyes at it a little bit more than they would otherwise. Our next question comes from Liz, who writes, Is the drum solo in Inagata Davida actually good and infamous, or just infamous? 
This is one of those subjective questions, but I think that it is worth at least revisiting this. This, of course, is the closing 17-minute track from Iron Butterfly's 1968 record, Inagata De Vida. There is a very long drum solo from Ron Bushy in the middle of this. This is the drummer for Iron Butterfly. And it is a famous solo because it's very long. I think this song is famous for being long. And Iron Butterfly is famous for recording this very long song, which I actually do think doesn't quite do justice to that band because they're a pretty good band. And uh, I actually I actually do think that this is a pretty good solo. The infamousness is maybe another question, but it's a it's a fine drum solo. A lot of the solo is pretty melodic, which is a word that, when I use it for drummers anyways, it's because they're playing ideas that repeat and feel like they have a melody to them, even though they're of course playing on drums that are each just kind of tuned to a single note and they're not quite playing something that you know you could hum or whistle. You'll hear him play an idea and then repeat it. They're also doing some fun stuff with panning, where the drums will be over on the right, then they'll slowly move toward the left. So yeah, you know, I think that considering that this was released in 1968, it was sort of a prototype or an early version of the very indulgent kind of, you know, uh, music that would then come to be popular in the 1970s. And I think that for that alone, it's a it's a pretty cool solo. Like the fact that a song would be 17 minutes long, that it would include this really just laid back, rangy drum solo where he just takes his time and just messes around and builds all these things without being, you know, overly loud and intense and, you know, going in a whole bunch of really wild uh, energy directions. He kind of just keeps it pretty tight and plays a lot of little melodic ideas on the drums. So to that, I think that, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty cool solo. You know, it's not on the level that a lot of jazz players were messing with in the late 1960s, but that's not really the point. It's kind of setting the stage for a lot of people to do a lot of really cool things with the idea of the extended mid-rock song drum solo. So as for its infamousness, I'm not totally sure, but yeah, sure. Pretty good drum solo, man. In a call of a vita, honey, don't you know that I'm loving you? LB writes, how in the world does Angus Young play that bonkers guitar intro to Thunderstruck by ACDC? I've seen videos of it, but it still physically makes no sense to me at all, both how he plays it and how his fingers don't fall off by the end of the song. Well, let's listen to a clip of the intro that LB is asking about. I just want to say that this intro rules, this song rules, and ACDC rules. Here we go. So yeah, Angus Young, guitar player for ACDC, is just playing constant 16th notes on his guitar, and it does sound really fast and like that would get exhausting after a while. There are some reasons that he makes it work, though. So the first time that I heard this, I thought he was doing finger tapping. Then I listened a little bit closer, and I could hear 
what sounds like a pick attack, so I think he is playing with a pick. Then I watched this video that's on ACDC's YouTube channel of them playing this live in Argentina. It's an amazing video, really fun to watch, just to see a huge arena full of people rock that hard, and to see how hard ACDC was still rocking even in like 2012. So this song is from 1990. You probably heard it on the Iron Man 2 soundtrack, or at least maybe you did, but it's originally from the album The Razor's Edge. And yeah, I mean, Angus Young is an icon of rock for a reason, and I think it's because he's really clever with his guitar parts, this is a clever part too. So this song is in B, and that's crucial to why this Angus Young guitar riff is able to work, and that's because one of the open strings on the guitar is the B string. It's the second string, second highest string, and if you're in the key of B, you can leave that string ringing, and you can then build a riff around it that's actually pretty easy to play because it only requires a little bit of motion in your left hand because you're constantly going back to that B string. So that's what he's doing. B string sounds like this. And hello there, it's a future version of Kirk from the year 2021, which is quite a while after this episode was recorded, here to tell you how Angus Young actually played this, because I got it wrong on this Q&A episode so, so many months and really years ago, and I've heard from several of you who have written in to explain to me how I was wrong, and you are correct, um, I had this wrong. I thought that he was playing between his second string and his third string, when really, you can do this whole thing on the second string, on the B string, and it's way easier to play. So, I've uh, I've come back to write this wrong, and to then hopefully not get any more emails from listeners, though thank you so much to everybody who wrote to tell me about this. It is absolutely worth getting the great Angus Young's guitar riffs right, because this is a great example of a single string guitar riff. So this whole thing is on the B string, and you can just start with your index finger and pinky finger just going back and forth between those two notes and then you just go up a half step so just slide up a fret and then you're basically doing that thing that he's doing at the beginning it's a very actually a very small motion with your left hand so once you've got that down then you just begin double picking and then open up the B string in between each note so the B string just rings open between each one Then for the second part of the riff, you just go up to the 12th fret, still on that second string, on the B string, and you just kind of walk down, basically down a B major scale. Then to do what Angus is doing, you do the same thing. You double pick and then just add an open B string in between each of those notes. Then you just get really, really good at guitar and practice that a whole bunch of times, slowly speeding it up with a metronome until you can play it at the lightning quick speed that Angus plays it at. Something that's true of guitar and that is actually true of every instrument is that the better you get at it, the less work you have to do to do anything. And those who are really good at the instrument typically need to do almost nothing to make a sound. So Angus Young is not using a lot of muscle strength to do a riff like this. He's playing very, very lightly. He's just playing with good technique and control. And as a result, he's able to just, he could do that all day, I'm sure, just do that riff. It's the kind of thing that would make me tired if I tried to play it for an entire song because I don't play guitar every day and I'm not in great shape and I don't have his chops, but he can do it without it really being a problem. It sounds fast and impressive, but because he's letting that open B string do the work, that's just an open string. He doesn't have to do anything except hit it with the pick. So it's a really clever riff, a really rocking song. Man, ACDC, good band.
Stefan writes in with a similar question. He writes, is the Edge's guitar sound on Where the Streets Have No Name by U2 easy to play and just a clever use of effects that makes it sound so unique? That's a cool question about a very good song. Let's listen to the intro in question. This is the Edge, the guitar player for U2. This is his iconic guitar part from the beginning of Where the Streets Have No Name from the album Joshua Tree. This is one of the most iconic uses of delay of all time. This album was produced by Brian Eno, and The Edge is also just a master tone technician on the guitar. So they're using delay to get this sound. You can hear the guitar bouncing all around. So Stefan's question is, is this an easy part to play and is it just the effects that make it sound cool? And uh, no, I don't think so. I, I think this is like a distinct and cool part that requires a certain amount of skill to play, even though it's fairly simple. And the effects are used very cleverly, but I don't think it's the kind of thing that just anybody could have played because it's not the kind of thing that just anybody could have come up with. The actual guitar part is pretty simple. He's keeping a steady strumming going on. His wrist is really loose and he's just hitting it, you know, in time. And he's just playing. And that's kind of it. So in terms of the notes, he's playing, it's pretty simple. So what he's doing is he's got his delay set to just be on a steady pulse in the tempo with the song, and he is just strumming along perfectly with the tempo of the song. Here, let me plug in my guitar. I will set my delay to a sort of close-ish setting, and this is what I'm talking about. I'm playing really simple stuff, but it just rings out and adds a pulse because the delay is going at a steady pulse in that tempo. So that's the basics. He's kind of just holding an octave. This song is in D, and he's just holding an octave D, and then just going bum, 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 between the three and the four like that. It's pretty simple to do with the left hand, but the right hand needs to really kind of do that fast, loose wrist strumming that he's very good at. And this part, I would say, is actually kind of hard because you've really got to lock in with the delay. So that part, I would say, does require chops. I mean, I can't do it the way that the edge does it. I'm not good enough. And that takes just some regular skill, some looseness, and some technique. There's also just the fact that this is a very creative part that he probably came up with or he and Eno came up with in the studio. And the edge is really good at that. I mean, it's kind of like fashionable to bag on U2 now. People kind of make fun of them for various reasons. But go back and listen to Act Tongue Baby in particular, that album. Or you could listen to Joshua Tree and just listen to the guitar parts. Like, try to take Bono's super extra singing, which is important impressive and he's an amazing singer but like focus on the guitar playing the guy is so creative in the studio he comes up with such cool parts he'll have a bunch of guitar parts on each song he uses effects really creatively this is a good example of that it's technically you know not the hardest thing in the world for a guitar player to play but coming up with this sound and building a song out of this sound i mean there's a reason that this is like one of the first delay presets on every digital effects box that exists because everyone wants to get that sound it's like this iconic sound and they came up with it and that alone i think requires quite a bit of skill
Lewis writes in, My friends and I were listening to Make Me Feel by Janelle Monet, and it struck us that the notes Janelle Monet sings on the pre-chorus section seem really unusual for a pop song. What makes this line sound so unusual? This is a great song. I think it was the lead single off of Janelle Monet's latest Dirty Computer. Obviously, I love Janelle Monet. I did an episode about her last year about her song Tightrope. She is really great. This album is really great. This song is the one that really channels Prince to a pretty cool degree. I know Prince was somehow involved before he died with this album, and he really liked Janelle Monet. She's kind of, in some ways, a spiritual successor to him. And this song definitely has a major Prince vibe going to it. Let's listen to the pre-chorus in question and see what Lewis is asking about. He's like, I'm powerful with a little bit of tender and emotional sexual bender. Mess me up, yeah, but no one does it better. There's nothing better. That's just the way you make me feel. Man, what a good song. Somebody listened to Prince's Kiss growing up and liked it and decided she wanted to record a song that sounded like it. So yeah, that pre-chorus is cool, and that is a pretty weird little descending line that she sings. I love it. It's very strange on purpose in a way that sticks out and feels a little bit awkward, but it's definitely a, a conscious thing that she is doing. First of all, fun fact about this song. This song is basically a blues. It's I don't think it's a 12-bar form, but it's basically a blues. It's an F-sharp starts in F-sharp, then it goes to B, which is the 4, then back to F-sharp. And this pre-chorus section is kind of the 5 section of a blues. It goes to a D-flat, then down to a B. They add a little bit more to it, but it's it's basically fulfilling that same function. So that's kind of a neat thing about this song. It's following one of the oldest song forms in the book. So what is it about these five notes? That sounds so odd. <laughs> All right, so it really comes down to chromaticism. That's just a little thing that goes from F sharp to D sharp and just kind of walks down. And it's partly in the way she sings it. It's a little bit loose. She stretches the notes a little bit. And it just creates this unusual kind of chromatic motion that um, doesn't quite match with the harmony in a way that you're expecting, but still works. It just feels funky because there's you know such an element of funk is stretching outside of the bounds of the music whether it's laying back the beat and playing with that really super laid back groove or stretching the notes in this sense and just adding some unusual chromaticism with the confidence of just knowing this thing is grooving so hard everyone is dancing so hard you're on board i'm gonna stretch it a little bit and mess with it and that's actually just gonna make the whole thing sound even better That's just the way you make me feel. That's just the way you make me feel. Danielle writes, I was listening to Journey's Wheel in the Sky tonight, and it made me wonder, is there a name for songs like that that have a sense of movement, as if you were traveling along, and what makes them feel that way? Sometimes the lyrics have to do with travel, but not always. Other examples I can think of are America's A Horse With No Name, which makes you feel like you're loping along, Led Zeppelin's Immigrant Song, and Night Train by Wynton Marsalis. Wheel in the sky keeps on turning Tomorrow. 
So these are actually all kind of different examples that Danielle cites, though I think there's a commonality there. And a traveling song is definitely a kind of a song. And a driving beat, of course, is a term that people frequently use. I think that musicians and drummers like to channel different sort of rhythmic modes of transport because they tend to move very rhythmically. On the episode about um, Hart's Barracuda, I talked about the kind of horse galloping beat, which you'll hear in Immigrant Song. I actually talked about Immigrant Song on that episode. And of course, you hear it on Barracuda. You hear it a lot of places that dum digga dum digga dum digga dum. It goes all the way back to the William Tell Overture. And that's kind of one way that music can channel a naturally occurring sound or a sound that you hear out in the world, in that case, horses' hooves. But, you know, a train beat like you're talking about, night trains, some of these other songs. I mean, musicians love trains. And it's probably because a train can get you to your next gig, but also because trains are such a wonderfully rhythmic sound. I always actually think of the Pat Metheny group uh, and their tune, Last Train Home, which is just such a quintessential train song. It also has a almost perfect melody, I think. Well, what can we do? I guess we have to listen to the whole melody now. so good. He has a couple of songs like that that are just these kind of perfect little songs that just encapsulate a sort of perfect melody. Maybe I'll talk about him on the show someday. Anyways, back to Danielle's question. So I think of that as kind of a train beat. You can tell a drummer, yeah, give me a kind of a train beat and they'll they'll know what to do. Uh, there's also just a sort of a traveling beat tends to have kind of that four on the floor pulse. Um, a quintessential example of it actually is the drum groove from Paul Simon's Graceland. just that kind of slightly up mid-tempo thing. There's that shaker, the bass drum on the floor. It's driving you forward. You can kind of see it before he even begins singing. As Danielle says, a lot of these songs are about travel, and you can just picture the hilltops rolling through the windshield. Travel is kind of a fundamentally rhythmic thing because we're moving, right? We're moving forward through time, and that's what a traveling beat does. It takes us there. The Mississippi Delta was shining like a national guitar. Oh boy, I am really including a bunch of clips of songs that I want to do future episodes on. Uh, thanks for giving me an excuse to do that, Danielle. So yeah, basically that's my answer, is I think that there's a sort of a fundamentally rhythmic aspect to travel. It's sort of like, you know, it's still about moving, and the rhythm is the thing that kind of moves you forward in the song. So it's kind of fitting that there's a lot of crossover in the language, and that a lot of grooves mimic the sounds of especially very rhythmic forms of transportation, like horses, or, you know, there's a strut, a strut is a really common kind of a groove and it kind of sounds like a person strutting down the street. One classic strut is the Sissy Strut by the funk band Demeters. You might not know it by name, but I bet you'll know it when you listen to it. That drum groove is played by Zigaboo Modaleste, the famed drummer of the Meters, and it's just so funky. You can just imagine someone just totally, you know, strutting down the street to this.
or of course a train groove like the one you heard on that Pat Metheny tune and like you'll hear on plenty of other songs. Adam writes, you talk a lot about the break in the male vocal range. Is there a technical term for singing falsetto down low below that natural break? The example that has gotten me thinking about it is on Ben Platt's solo album. He breaks into it several times, but it is really on display in the first chorus of In Case You Don't Live Forever. It's a sound that I really enjoy, and I am curious if there is a name for the technique. Well, for starters, let's listen to that. This is Ben Platt, best known for Dear Evan Hansen, singing In Case You Don't Live Forever. Everything you mean to me Okay, here's the chorus In case you don't live forever Let me tell you now I love you more than you'll ever wrap your head around In case you don't live forever Let me tell you the truth I'm everything that I am because of you. Nice song, straightforward, but yeah, that is interesting how he's singing this. I've been meaning to listen to Ben Platt for a while, partly because I've talked about him a little bit with my voice instructor since we talked so much about the break and about head voice and chest voice and the mix and all of that. And he had actually mentioned um, that Ben Platt is someone who does interesting things with his head voice. And yeah, I hear it there. This is a cool song. So what he's doing is he is indeed singing in his head voice down a little bit lower below the break. So we're in A here and he starts on an A in the middle of the male register and then jumps up to a high A and then he kind of walks down the A major scale. The melody sounds like this. Now when he jumps up to that A, he jumps up into his head voice, also known as falsetto, and that's a pretty standard move if you're singing a delicate song and you need to jump up into an A, at least if you're a male singer, because, you know, singing an A in full voice, it's going to be pretty strong. There are, of course, singers who would do it here, but it is a natural move to go into head voice. But then you would probably find a way to sneak back into your chest or into your mix on the way down. At least that's kind of the more standard move. You kind of start out here, in, and then you jump up to your head voice, in case you don't live forever let me tell you now so I kind of slipped from my head voice into my chest voice it's a very different move and a little bit more untraditional to sing it all in head voice once you make that jump let me give it a shot he kind of starts here and then he jumps up to his head voice and then he walks it down in case you don't live forever let me tell you now so the thing is yes he is technically stretching his head voice pretty far down which is the technique that that's usually associated with is called bel canto which is a style of I think operatic singing Um, not an opera singing expert so nobody yell at me if I'm a little bit off about that but I believe that's kind of what that's known as and it's where you sing down here with your head voice and you're kind of singing like this but of course you can learn to put quite a bit of power into that by compressing your voice a certain way and it can be a very very beautiful thing you'll hear a lot of male opera singers singing in that style Platt is embracing that here, and it's a beautiful sound. It is a very, it really draws you in. It's very small and controlled, but you know, he's not doing this very exaggerated, tiny little light head voice. He's putting quite a bit into it. And the thing is, he's really kind of just in a mix this whole time. So, my voice teacher, Nevada, shout out to Nevada. He's a really cool dude. He talks a lot about mixes, and he goes beyond just treating the vocal mix like the place 
uh, you know, kind of that sort of minor third where the break happens and you're kind of singing a mix between your head voice and your chest voice, you can be singing up high with a kind of a head mix with a little chest in it, or you can be singing down low with a chest mix with a lot of head in it. And I think if you really have a lot of control over your voice, which Platt definitely does, he's in a very head focused mix down in those lower notes on that A and that B and that C sharp, but he's not like entirely singing in head voice, or at least it isn't always that helpful to think of them as a total binary, because your voice does kind of use both aspects at all times. Like parts of my voice right now, you know, the head voice parts of my voice are kind of resonating, just like when I'm speaking kind of high, some of the chest notes are resonating. So it's maybe helpful to think of it like a spectrum, and he's pretty far to the head voice end of the spectrum, down on those lower notes, but it's really just because he's choosing that as a color to uh, to, to sing the notes with. In case you don't live forever, let me tell you now, I love you more than you'll ever wrap your head around. In case you don't live forever, let me tell you the truth. I'm everything that I am because of you. Justin writes, when someone, a.k.a. Lin-Manuel Miranda, is developing a musical, what sort of common criteria do they use when choosing key signatures? Do they tend to keep most of the musical in the same key, or do they choose songs individually based on a specific performer's range? What if, for example, he had written Eliza's parts in a given key, but then found the perfect performer, but her ideal range didn't match the parts? How do composers compromise with these sorts of things? Well, I can only speak broadly here, and, you know, I haven't done a lot of composing for various singers, and I don't know fully how it works on Broadway, but I have my I have my hunches, so I guess I'll just speak to those. Uh, I do think that the primary um, reason that a song would be in one key and not another is going to be for the vocalist, just because that's the one thing that kind of can't change, you know, the, the singer's voice and the way that their resonances work, and, you know, their range is a little less changeable than, say, just, you know, retuning or playing a guitar in a different key or playing bass in a different key. I would think that when you're workshopping something like a musical that you're working on, you would be pretty flexible with the key if you're working with a singer that you really like and he or she is telling you, you know, oh, I can really, really hit this note if you just raise it a half step and make it an F sharp instead of an F, I'll put it right in that sweet spot. I could see that working. I think that once a part becomes established, like the way that Eliza is now a very established part, um, Eliza Schuyler from Hamilton, I think at that point, the range is just a known thing and anyone auditioning for the part knows that they have to sing in that range and knows the songs and has learned how to sing them. I think Hamilton is actually an interesting musical in this respect because some of the parts are so non-traditional. Like if you're a musical theater major or someone who went to a major musical theater program, you probably have the chops to do your average Broadway lead part because a lot of those are written for the same kind of voice and the same kind of range. But Hamilton, you know, is one of those musicals. It's not the only one, but it's one of those musicals that has parts that were written for specific, very specific artists who just aren't that kind of a voice. I mean, there's a part where if you're going to play Lafayette and Jefferson, you have to be able to speed rap with a French accent. Like there's, there are parts in that musical that are very strange, though Eliza is actually one of the more traditional parts because she doesn't even really have any, you know, tricky rapping that she has to do. She just has to sing. So that's actually a pretty straightforward part compared to some of the other parts in Hamilton, but that's specific to that musical. At any rate, back to Justin's question, I would say that key mostly changes due to a singer's range. Usually once a part is established, then the singers will just need to learn how to sing in 
in that range. And the one time that it will kind of change is if you bring back an original cast member, I could see this happening. I don't know of this happening on Broadway, but I've played, you know, I've played shows where this has been the case with a singer who's been, you know, touring with the same act for a long time. As they've gotten older and their voice has maybe lowered a little bit, the parts will be rewritten and the keys will be changed and lowered a tad. So they're still in a good place in their voice just because they don't quite have the range that they did when they were younger. I could see that if they bring Hamilton back. I'll be curious actually about the movie, which is apparently going to have the original cast. Um, if when they do that, even just a few years later, if they change the keys for anybody on any of those songs, I guess we will see. Mike writes, could you compare and contrast how journalism and criticisms are approached in the music world versus the video game world? Can one approach music journalism and critique in the same way that one approaches video game critique? Uh, This is an interesting question for me, at least, just because, you know, I, uh, in another life, wrote about video games all the time and did so as a musician and started as a musician and sort of fell into the world of video games and now am back to talking about music and making music all of the time. So I guess I do have some thoughts on that. So for starters, I don't really know from journalism. I didn't do what I would consider that much video game journalism. Like I did some reported pieces um, over the years that I was doing that as my full-time job, but I was more of a critic. So I kind of understand things more from that perspective. And that was always just the value that I saw in doing it. Like I, I think that criticism and education are very similar. I think a good critic helps people understand how they feel about a piece of art through, you know, by channeling the critic's own experience of something, a person can read it or watch the video and kind of better understand their own interpretation of the same thing. I think that that applies across any kind of criticism. Like there's just such an overlap between criticism and education. And I think that any good critic of any kind of art does the same thing. So in that, I think that they're similar. I do think there's one interesting parallel between music and video games. And this was something that I noticed when I began writing about video games as a musician. It was a perspective that I think that I had because I was a musician and specifically a jazz musician that gave me a just sort of different perspective. And that's kind of it comes down to the act of play and how both music and video games involve um man-made you know human designed spaces for play that then people are expected to play in so basically i consider video games and music to be very similar along this one axis if you think of music as something that you play and not something that you listen to listening to music is pretty passive video games require interactivity so that's like a fairly different process but playing music and playing video games actually has a lot in common i mean notice the word play they have that in common you play music and you play a game and as a jazz musician what you'd spend a lot of time doing is playing within a space that somebody else made. You know, say you're going to play Joy Spring. That's a jazz standard. You're going to play that on a gig. You call Joy Spring and it gives you a kind of a series of parameters, you know, a song form, a chord progression, and then you improvise within that space. And that's the kind of the play aspect of it is you just mess around and see what you can do. You have a constrained space. You're not going to go too far outside the key of the song or the song's form or the rhythm, you know, the way that you're playing together. But it's this sort of collaborative improvisational uh, process that involves playing within a space that somebody else designed. That, I think, is actually fairly similar to the act of playing a game where you're a lot of times, especially something like Minecraft, something really open-ended, you're given this open series of parameters that someone has designed, and then you kind of improvise within that space. And they're obviously very, very different in a lot of ways, but I see this through line, this connection, that's always given me at least a kind of a, I think, an interesting way of looking at both games and music. And like I said, that's not the only vector on which to view them. I just think that it's an interesting one, and one that I've found useful.
Dollar on Twitter writes, I'm curious if you consider yourself an audiophile in any sense of the word, which will eventually lead into what is your audio rig and setup? I don't know that I do consider myself an audiophile, actually. Like, I care about how things sound and spend a lot of time thinking about sound. But in terms of the definition of audiophile that I think of anyways, that I think dollar means, which is basically someone who owns really, really good uh, listening equipment and like has an acoustically tuned room and or really high-end speakers and a great amp for their record player and really just has a sort of pristine listening environment or at least values that. I don't know if that's really me, actually. Part of that just comes down to resources. Like I don't have a dedicated listening room and I think that acoustics are such an important part of listening that if I were going to invest a lot of money in getting a really good hi-fi setup, then I would also want to invest some money in having a room that's going to make that hi-fi setup sound good. Like it would be a waste to buy $1,000 speakers and then just put them in your dining room. Like they, I mean, I guess not a waste, but it might not be the best use of that investment. So in terms of recording equipment, I do use nice equipment or at least like fairly nice. I'm slowly, always just slowly upgrading things in my studio. I see that as kind of different that's not really audiophile that's just like being a recording person like with a studio then you just care about your gear because you you want things to record and sound well but in terms of my record playing setup let's see i use a project turntable which is pretty good like it's not one of the super crazy ones but it's nicer than um the the uh, sort of dj turntable that i inherited from an old roommate that sounded fine but the the project is definitely a nicer turntable it's nice looking and it sounds good um i think i use a yamaha amp these days which is a modern amp i don't go for you know, tube amplifiers, because like I said, not really an audiophile. And I use Klipsch speakers that I inherited from my brother-in-law, I think. So I've never really gone out and, and tried to to buy really expensive things, but those speakers sound pretty good. And that's kind of usually where I'm at on it. It's like you get some pretty good stuff and it'll sound fine because in the end, I'm more concerned with the actual musical information and less concerned with the sound quality at least past a certain point. Like, I want it to sound good. I want to be able to hear everything. But I'm not that obsessed with, like, the huge, you know, sound bouquet that you can get if you really tune a room and use really, really good gear and get everything, you know, set up just right. I'm more like, okay, can I hear what all the parts are doing? Can I hear what the music is? All right, that's the most important thing for me. One thing is I do like listening to music on vinyl. If you follow me on Instagram, you've seen I've been I've been actually buying uh, vinyl records of the albums of all of the songs that I've done this year. I think I'm going to keep doing that. And it's been really fun to just sit and listen to the albums on vinyl. That's slightly different, though. For me, at least, it's not about the sound quality. It's actually about the ritual and the fact that it requires you to move this physical object and place it there and sit and play the whole album instead of just putting it on, you know, via Spotify or whatever or playing it on a playlist. I like the fact that it requires your attention and that it requires you to actually maintain it. Like the inefficiency and sort of uh, inconvenience of using vinyl is one of the things that draws me to it, which is its own thing. Like it's not really tied to the audio quality, though I do also appreciate the way way that records sound. I think they generally sound very nice. Two questions from listener Paulina, who writes in, first with a one related to that last question. She writes, what headphones do you use? I want to buy new ones that will help me better appreciate my music. Do you have any recommendations? And I do, actually. I listen to a lot of stuff on headphones. And I should say, all of this gear that I'm mentioning in this section, like... Obviously, like I, I would disclose if anybody was paying me to talk about this. These are just things that I like that I use. This is in no way any kind of a like official endorsement or anything. Um, I just have used a lot of stuff over the years, and I have the things that I use, and I think they're pretty good. So headphones. I get this question a lot, so it seemed worth answering on the show. 
in the studio and actually outside of the studio as well, I really like the AKG K240S headphones. These are semi-open back headphones. They're super comfortable. They are classics. You've seen them in a ton of pictures of people recording albums over the years. They've been around forever. What I like about these headphones is mostly they're vinyl and wire, so they don't break easily. I have one, I have two pairs of these. One of the pairs I've had for I don't even know, like 15 years or something at this point, and they're still great. Like, I still use them. They're a little the worse for wear, but they're still great. So I really like those headphones. Those are AKG K240S headphones. They're really good in the studio. I also like Grado headphones. I have a pair of those that I use for listening. I think they're the SR125E. Um, Grados are pretty cool. The, they're not as practical. Like, the cable is just a little bit more, um, I don't know, it's a little thicker, and so it's, it's harder to, to carry around. But some Sometimes when I listen to music, like when I'll just lie on the floor and stare at the ceiling and listen to an album, I do like to use those Grados. They're very transparent. Both those and the AKGs have like a really big soundscape. So albums sound really big, which helps me pick out all the individual parts. And I like both of those um, for listening just at home. The third set of headphones that I get a lot of mileage out of are a little bit more pricey, so they're not for everybody, but these are the, those are the Sennheiser uh, HD1. I think they used to be called the Movement, and now they're called the HD1, but those are totally closed noise-canceling headphones that have Bluetooth, but you can also run them wired. They're really great headphones, but they are pretty expensive. They were kind of a, a splurge that I got for myself about a year ago, but I use them a lot, especially when I'm traveling. Obviously, they're pretty good on planes. They're really good for going on walks whenever I go on my walks around Portland listening to albums or listening back to episodes of Strong Songs, I always use these headphones. They sound really, really good. And I don't love listening to music on Bluetooth because it's like noticeably degraded compared to listening to it on a cable. But that is one nice thing about the headphones is you can just plug a cable in and listen, uh, you know, listen over the wire. So those are the Sennheiser HD ones. Also very good headphones. And I'd say those are my three main, uh, main headphones, at least when it comes to listening to music. So Paulina's second question is, I've been playing Louis Luigi's Mansion 3, and there's this song in there, the ghost-catching theme, and I'm just impressed with how fast some of the parts are played. Do you think these are modified or were actually played by musicians? Well, I've played this game as well. I really like it and actually think there is something interesting about the uh, about the music for this game that will maybe answer Paulina's question, but let's listen to a clip of the tune in question. So we've got what sounds like a vibraphone and a tenor saxophone going back and forth on each other, playing very delicately and very quickly. The question is, is it really a saxophone? And the answer to that is no, actually, it is not. It is a sampled saxophone, and I think all the instruments on this soundtrack are sampled, but they're really well done. I'm super impressed with how well they've faked the horns on this soundtrack. So the composers on this game were named Chad York and Darren Radke, and I really like the music to this game. This is also just like a really fun video game, but it's very jazzy. It's very jazz small group. There's a lot of stuff that's traditional jazz quintet, or I guess sextet, a lot of stuff with piano, drums, bass, vibraphone, tenor saxophone, and trumpet. But like I said, the instruments aren't real. However, I don't know what sample bank they're using, but they're doing a very good job of faking it, especially the trumpet. There are parts like the faster it gets, especially actually during that example that Paulina asked about, it's pretty clear if you're a saxophone player, you hear 
the f- speed with which it, uh, the saxophone is moving and the attacks just don't fully sound natural. They just it isn't a sax player, though that is totally a part that a very good saxophone player could play, and it would sound a lot like it does um, timbrely. It's just there's something slightly off with the um, with the attacks on the notes and the articulation. You can just tell it isn't real. But there are a lot of times where the trumpet sounds so close to real that it isn't until there's one little thing that's off that I would be confirmed. Oh yeah, okay, that isn't a real trumpet player. They didn't hire a trumpet player. They did this all using sampled instruments and just very careful um, MIDI inputs and very careful controls to make it sound real. That trumpet is impressive, man. That plays uh, during that section. I think that's when you're you're talking to Professor E. Gad. Um, that trumpet sample is is pretty incredible. The drums, you know, sound a little bit fake. The saxophone sounds a little bit fake. That trumpet is pretty convincing. But I think that for whatever reason, probably logistical reasons, they opted to go with sampled music. Though I think it kind of fits with the tone of the game. These uh, Nintendo games sometimes do have, you know, full big bands and and acoustic instruments, but for some reason, the sound of sampled horns fits with the kind of artificiality in the, you know, animated world quality of a video game, especially a Nintendo game. So I think it works. I love this soundtrack. I think it's delightful, and it is really cool how they went about trying to fake the instruments so convincingly. Last, let's hear from listener Sarah, who writes in not with a question, but with a realization that she had that I thought was really cool and I wanted to share on the show. Here's Sarah. She writes, I just wanted to let you know something you said in the August 2019 Q&A episode absolutely blew my mind. A listener had asked about Kurt Cobain's guitar tone on Come As You Are, and the way you explained it so simply in that the guitar was tuned down and he was playing with a certain pedal, and that it was his general vibe and sound. It made me stop and realize probably my biggest musical epiphany to date— Music is art. You see, I'm very much a visual person, always have been, whereas my boyfriend is a musician. We often joke that I have the eyes while he has the ears. I'm currently learning to play piano because I like looking at the patterns my fingers make on the keys, which is probably why I've stuck with this instrument much longer than my previous attempts at guitar, clarinet, and saxophone. Anyway, what you made me realize is that in much the same way that visual artists have their own flavor, in terms of medium, style, etc., so do guitarists and other musicians. It doesn't matter if I try to copy Van Gogh's The Starry Night, I'll never be able to get it exactly the same because odds are I'll be using a different brand of oil paint on a different type of canvas, using a different type of brush and a different method of brush stroke, never mind the color composition. And even if I did somehow manage to replicate all of those things exactly, I'm not Van Gogh. Something of myself will still shine through in the art. And now I'm looking at, well, listening to music in a completely different way. It's like a whole sphere of musical opportunity has been blown wide open. I can't wait to keep at it and discover my own distinct sound. Well, Sarah, I'm really, really happy to hear that. I think that that's a really cool realization and, of of course, completely agree with your take. Art varies wildly depending on the medium, but at the same time, there are some fundamentals that carry across to all art, and it's one of the reasons that I find studying different media uh, so fascinating. But music will always be my favorite, and it is wonderful to hear that another person has been picking up the piano and discovering their own sound. So, Sarah, good luck in your piano practice, and thanks for listening. 
And that'll do it for this mailbag episode. Thank you, everyone who sent in questions. As always, if you'd like to send me a question for a future mailbag, you can do so. Send an email to strongsongspodcast at gmail.com, or you can find me on Twitter at Kirk, K-I-R-K Hamilton, or on Instagram at Kirk underscore Hamilton. The biggest of thank yous to all of my Patreon patrons. Thanks so much to everybody who supports this show. You are helping me make this happen. And if you want to know more about how to help me make this show, head over to patreon.com slash strong songs. Thanks also just to everyone who's listening, spreading the word, telling their friends. I'm still just having such a blast making this show and you're the reason I make it. So thanks. Our outro soloist is the first one from this year, Mr. Kyle Molitor on the trombone. So stick around for Kyle and I'll be back in two weeks with yet another strong song. Strong song.